Hello, Weekside Podcast listeners. If you're here, that means you found our new feed. Thank you so much. We're excited to have new opening music, new outro music, our new cover art, which we got from a graphic artist that is our producer, Shelby Royston's friend. I tweeted his Instagram uh, on my Twitter account, so you could check out his other work there. But we're very excited to have Connor depicted in his Oracle giving garb and uh, <laughs> mine and my Ventus consensus giving garb. So uh, we're really excited that we have this new look four weeks into the season and we're thrilled that you guys came with us. You can continue to reach out to us at weeksidepod at gmail.com. And we also have a voicemail line. It's 929-445-7349. You can call in with questions there. Maybe we'll play your voicemail on air and answer it. So we have a lot of exciting things here at the Weekside Podcast, and we're really thrilled to begin this new chapter with you. And why don't we dive into the news of the week, Connor? This has been a really big week in the NFL um, some major developments regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. It was kind of what we expected. We were essentially waiting for this to happen. The NFL had had really strong testing results through camp, through the first few weeks of the season. But we always knew there were some loopholes in the testing, loopholes in the protocols that could allow for some concerns. Obviously, Every team has a staff of players, coaches, personnel, support staff that go home and live at their houses or apartments or whatever the case may be with family members. They're going to and from the facility. And we have seen the effects of that with the Titans outbreak and then the the, uh, postponement of the Patriots chief game after positive tests on both teams, most notably Patriots starting quarterback Cam Newton. Yeah, this is, um, it's crazy. I mean, as we're talking right now, the Patriots are traveling into um, uh, Missouri and then are going to make their way over to a game uh, to play, which I can't remember the last time. I think Hurricane Sandy was the last time that a visiting team actually made it to the stadium and played on the same day. And a team, I I don't think that team had to travel nearly as far as the Patriots did um, to get to Kansas City. It's getting strange and it's getting to the point where, you know, and I've said this a million times before, but this isn't anybody you know, wanting to say that I told you so or that we were right or that we were rooting for the league to come into this position because we were concerned at the outset. But I feel like we're at the point now where everyone needs to be super careful, right? I mean, cases are spiking back up again. COVID has affected every walk of life. And now, you know, the NFL, it's just a slow trickle. The quarterbacks on each team who have spent the week in huddles, uh, talking in close proximity to the players, touching all the footballs and throwing them, and, you know, in any number of meetings and everything like that. And it's just, uh, it, it start, this is the NFL's big challenge now. I think that maybe everybody got a little complacent after a couple weeks where everything seemed to be going well. Everybody tried to just, you know, go back and live their normal everyday lives. And unfortunately, the reality is that's not going to be able to happen. Yeah, this week, the past week, has been a sobering reminder, both in the NFL and in our nation at large, 
that you can't get complacent with protocols, that until we have a vaccine, stringent protocols, strict adherence to them, all of these measures that have grinded daily life to a halt since March are our only defense at this point in time, and you can't let up on them whatsoever. And now the NFL is kind of at a tipping point. I mean, I think you and I, Connor, are in agreement in this, that we're stunned that the game in Kansas City is proceeding as planned. We saw what happened with the Titans. They had a positive test in the organization on Friday, then a positive test on Saturday. And to be quite honest, neither of those really made the radar. It was really quiet that the Titans were missing their defensive play caller. I didn't know it until after the games were played last week. So they they traveled to Minnesota in week three, and then from there, the breakout has spread throughout the team. And there was obviously that one-day gap in testing. Players and staff are tested Saturday morning. They get the results back Sunday. But the previous protocols did not allow for any testing on game day. So the next time that members of the organization were tested was the Monday following that game. And that turned up a bunch of positives on Tuesday, which continued all the way through Sunday. Monday was the first day without new positive tests for COVID within the organization. And looking back, I think it's stunning that that game was played with two positive tests in the organization. And that's why we were looking on the playing of the Patriots-Chiefs game skeptically because of Cam Newton's test uh, apparently on Friday morning, which returned results late Friday night, came up as positive, then those close contacts of his may not develop symptoms for several days. We know the incubation period is 2 to 14 days. Experts say that it's generally around 4 to 5 days. And so there's no way to know tests that come up negative before that point may not be reliable. People may still be infected and they may get to an infectious point um, before they turn up a positive test because of the gaps in testing. Now, as a result of the Titans outbreak, the league did update the protocols. If a team has been part of an outbreak or exposed to an outbreak, they can do point of care and additional uh, PCR testing on game day. But here's my question, Connor, is I, I'm frustrated with the league's continued uh, hubris is the only word I can think of right now as it pertains to the situation. Rather than saying, yes, we recognized that our protocols had a hole in them, we should have mandated game day testing in the event of a team turning up positive tests. We should have had that as part of our protocols. We should be flexible and be willing to let games be moved to a week 18 or 19 or canceled altogether or there being some pause for teams with an outbreak. Rather than that, they're essentially just saying, hey, our protocols are fine. It was the adherence to the protocols that wasn't lived up to. And I feel like that's an unfair shifting of blame onto individual teams when a non-bubble situation was always set up to potentially fail. Totally. And, you know, everybody now is looking at the individual players. And again, there are a million different um, reasons why or reasons how someone can contract 
this virus. So it's not like, you know, every individual is at fault unless they're openly flouting the protocols, which, I mean, if you look at the Raiders story a few weeks ago was was one of those. And it's miraculous that they didn't have any positive tests turn up um, out there when none of them were wearing masks at a public um, at a public gathering. But, you know, I, I just think it's absurd that just the rigidness that they've approached all this because I can't imagine I was talking to someone about this the other day that what this is going to end up being right like so we already have a Patriots game without Cam Newton um I I would guess by the end of the year there will be other star players affected you know there's there's going to be cancellations the Steelers who did nothing wrong are end up forced into an early bye when they're three and oh and playing as good as they've played um in a while um with Ben Roethlisberger back so all these things that are happening I can't imagine that the goal at the end of the year what you get as a fan as a league as a coach is all that satisfying when the product is going to feel ultimately a little hollow right there's going to be all these asterisks applied to everything that happened this season it's it's not a complete season and the people out there that are uh, comparing it to injuries it's just sound ridiculous because yes star players are hurt every year but this is a completely different um, animal this is just needlessly putting people at risk um, it's you know uh, and I don't know it, it just feels strange it feels weird you know everybody's going to watch this game tonight and there there could be 20 guys on new england that are uh, positive for coronavirus and nobody has any idea yeah this is a strange year in sports championships carry a different meaning and that's something that over time we'll have to see how the legacy of those titles go down um and i feel like there is still meaning in a championship and there is still meaning in a season we saw baseball have some hiccups in the summer but now they are in the playoffs and there are paths forward but Uh, I think the NFL needs to be uh, the NFL in conjunction with the Players Association. Obviously, they've negotiated these protocols together. I think they need to be willing to take stronger measures, not just to ensure games are played, right? The priority right now is clearly making sure games are played with as little disruption. What has been made secondary is the whole community and the safety of these events going on. It's not just the safety of the members of the team, although that is clearly an important consideration. It's also the safety of all of the other people in the community. There was the bus driver in Minnesota uh, that tested positive after having driven the Titans. Um, I haven't seen more details on that, but that's just one example, right? You're you're going through airports. You have people on your plane. There's staff that you're around. Um, there is a plane that's flying a uh, certain number of patriots that were in close contact with cam newton they're being flown on a separate plane but then there's people on that plane that have nothing to do with the patriots right so you have to think about the impact you're making on communities i would say the same argument goes with having fans in some stands um and so i i think that the frustration comes in with this lack of regard for anything other than let's play as many games as we can. You know that there had to have been owners, for instance, salivating when the governor of Florida mentioned he hopes to play the Super Bowl with a full stadium, even though it doesn't seem like the NFL is going that way. And that would be absurd. But you know, there are some people in the league who absolutely want that to be the case, even if it's the farthest thing from being safe. So I just I feel like there needs to be a little bit more of an acknowledgement that we might not have all of the answers and we're adjusting. Like, just say that and we're considering more stringent protocols rather than saying, oh, our protocols have been right all along because clearly that has not been the case. 
Yeah, I, I don't understand how, like, you know, there are elementary schools around where I live or high schools around where I live where if there's two positive tests in the school, school gets shut down for in, for an incubation period of the virus. Like, and while it might not be the most scientific thing, it's, you know, it's, it's an idea. It's a collapsible thing that they've built into their uh, schedule and their protocol. The NFL had a bigger runway than any of the other professional leagues. And of course, this is what they're doing, but it's still surprising to me somewhat that they're just like, yeah, let's just keep barreling ahead. You know, this one, there happened to be similar bye weeks with the tight so that one worked out, but there's going to be a time where it's not, and all of a sudden the schedule is going to start warping, and everything's going to look ridiculous. And like, why don't we just pause? Like, cases are spiking around the country. The president has COVID. They're, the entire administration is is COVID positive. Like, everybody I think now is on board with the fact that this is a legitimate and real threat. So why don't we just? press the pause button for a minute and get everybody a chance to get healthy and you know give everybody time to maybe safely negotiate a bubble uh, a bubble proposal if that's what they want to do for the remainder of the season or you know uh, hammer out a 12 game proposal which we've heard some coaches maybe voice a little bit of encouragement for anything other than what they're doing now which you know as we speak you know there are uh, whatever 55 New England Patriots just traipsing through a, a large city right now and god knows what's going to happen yeah, I, I, it, we're recording this on Monday afternoon, like you said, Connor, but I am struggling with the idea that this game is being played tonight, and I am concerned about what the tests will turn up tomorrow. I'm concerned about what the tests will turn up on Wednesday. I, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of... Uh, issues with them barreling ahead, uh, knowing that, you know, one of the arguments for moving the game back either to Monday or Tuesday, which was the original plan, was that there were more close contacts for Cam Newton uh, than there were in, in the case, apparently, of, for instance, the Falcons cornerback, A.J. Terrell, which, by the way, the fact that there was no spread from a player getting it the week before is a lucky event, and that is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Minimum number of people were affected, but that should not be used for proof of games being played without further risk. And so I... I am concerned that there were enough close contacts of Cam Newton to put them on a separate Patriots plane, but yet they're going forward with playing this game. And I think that a lot of options should be considered right now, as, as you referenced, Connor. Um, we're at a point in the season where there's, you know, they went this direction. And maybe it's time to consider a reset. The bubble, Just, a pause, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a couple different options that you can consider. Um, and all I hear is the counter arguments for them, right? Like players don't want to be isolated. I mean, I get that. Like it is lonely being isolated. I've lived alone in an apartment for six months. I haven't hugged another human being in six months. Like I understand that. It's very isolating. But I think we're all dealing with unusual circumstances right now. Um, I hear, okay, well, they don't want to add weeks 18 or 19 because then there's a delay at the end of the season. And I think the idea of, of just canceling games rather than postponing them should be on the table. I know that's not fair across the board, but as you referenced, the Steelers schedule isn't necessarily fair at this point. So things are going to happen that aren't fair. Yeah. And that's the, that's the reality of it. But like anything else, it seems like the league is just not willing to embrace that. And the speed at which everyone is just closing their eyes and plugging their ears and barreling ahead is just awful. And I, you know, 
you never want to root for anything to happen, especially something horrendous like that. But what if you're right? I mean, what if on Monday or on Tuesday, on Wednesday, more positive tests start uh, popping up and just the callousness of the optics of playing that game? I don't know. It's just uh, it's going to look bad. And it's not anything that anybody's rooting for. Trust us. I mean, football has been a nice lift. Uh, you know, writing about the game every Sunday, writing about the game during the week has been an incredible break from, you know, the, sort of that isolation that we all went through in March and April and May and June. But, uh, you know, are, are you willing to trade that for a person's safety for anybody's well-being absolutely not you know so here's hoping that everybody is safe at that game but that the league kind of takes this as an, an acknowledgement that they got away with one and not what they're doing is the, is the right thing to do right absolutely all right connor for our first news topic we actually have some breaking news right as we are recording this pod Whoa. Bill O'Brien has been fired as the head coach of the Texans with a 52-48 and record that includes four division titles, but an 0-4 start to this season, obviously well below expectations for an organization that hoped to continue to take steps forward, continue uh, hope to contend with Deshaun Watson at the helm, uh, and obviously this year has been a rough start for the Texans, and they are the first team this season to make a coaching change. What do you make of this, Connor? Well, I, I think that in the immediate reaction here is obviously that Bill O'Brien, the GM, got Bill O'Brien, the coach, fired. It sounds like my uh, little Karen Terrier, Ernie, agrees with that um, as he's uh, being very he's, he's very shaken up by the uh, Bill O'Brien news. Um, but um, I, I think that any time that you put yourself out there as a coach and in a way it's sort of admirable right you want to run it your way and you basically house of cards your way to the top of the organization you trade all the people that you couldn't stand working with and you put your own name on the line here there's no other gm there's no other person to blame but when then when you start 0 and 4 and none of these players are performing then that this is what happens you know it's kind of the downside to accumulating all this power and O'Brien certainly made a lot of bold moves over the last few years. Obviously, the Tunsil trade, which has depleted them of future draft picks. Then he traded away DeAndre Hopkins, which raised a lot of eyebrows. He and Deshaun Watson were very close, and he was clearly a critical piece in their offense, in Deshaun Watson's further progression as a quarterback. And you could see the after effects of it so far this season. And what's interesting about the Tunsil trade, which, you know, you could argue is maybe the best move that he's made as the general manager of the Texans, he is a top five left tackle, is that Deshaun Watson is still being pressured at about 30% of his dropbacks, which was the pressure rate that he was getting hit on in 2018, which was bad enough to necessitate the Laramie Tunsil trade in the first place. So you've gotten rid of all of your draft equity to get one guy who does not, obviously one guy does not fix all of your problems. And maybe, you know, you're not doing a good enough job coaching up the rest of the offensive linemen. You don't have the right pieces there to make that all work. But regardless, even his best trades on a really good day didn't come nearly close enough to fixing all the team's problems. And I think in a lot of ways he created many more problems um, with the rest of the moves. Yeah, and certainly there was friction with Hopkins that potentially contributed to his being traded away, uh, which Hopkins has talked about a little bit. He's told 
SI's Greg Bishop this spring that he had no relationship with Brian mm-hmm. O'Brien. So obviously those things accumulate as well and become factors in the decision. But what's interesting is that Jack Easterby is now atop the Texans organization and is in charge, apparently, according to reports, of the path forward. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, you go from New England Patriots character coach to essentially like de facto vice president owner executive whatever you want to call it and it's weird because bill belichick does not get rid of people or does not allow people to leave that are you know essential to his business and people that he does not know that he he knows he can't replace he brought in jack easterby everything worked out and he let jack easterby go to another organization and so if you're the texans are you weary at all about this? I mean, you just got rid of a Patriots assistant coach that Bill Belichick thought it was okay to part ways with. And, you know, a guy that came in and really shook up your organization. Now you're ready to hand this over to another guy that I I don't know. I mean, who are they listening to? What is the structure moving forward? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think your immediate reaction i know ian rapaport had said this from nfl network is to say are they going to bring nick casario and josh mcdaniels over now at some point um to have them uh run the texans and you know if, if you're cal mcnair at this point are you looking around and saying like i i gotta i gotta walk back into this building and kind of get a hold of some stuff here yeah there's a lot to process right now and i think the sad part about it is they have this fantastic quarterback who was in the evaluations, you know, in the in the draft class that he was a part of, it was, you know, a lot of teams had him and Mahomes together. And Mahomes has ended up in this fantastic organization with Andy Reid, who had devised this offense, who's doing everything to build around his talents. And Watson has landed in an organization that's really struggled. And there's been questions about the play calling and the direction of the offense. And now there's a head coaching change. You just hope that... Whichever coach comes in, whatever moves they decide to make from here, that they serve Watson well because he's such a unique talent. He's such a unique player and person that you really want to see someone like that succeed. And I don't know what the path forward is for the Texans, but Deshaun Watson is the center of that path forward. Yeah. And, you know, the immediate, right. I mean, as soon as the move is made, everybody's saying, oh, Dabo Swinney's leaving uh, Clemson. I, I don't think that's true. Um, Romeo Cornell, as we know, is going to be the interim head coach for the remainder of the season. But just a strange situation. And I, I've, I've gotten some pushback on this, but I think my immediate thought here was if you're, if you're the head coaching candidate, if you're the hot candidate, and whether that's Eric Bieniemy, um, which it might be this year, um, or you know somebody else, Robert Sala, or any of these guys that come out and Houston comes knocking on your door, are you going to be a little freaked out that they have zero draft equity? Like the cupboard is bare, and it's not like a lot of these teams where there's some low-hanging fruit that you can flip for some picks and immediately accumulate capital. Are you a little freaked out about that? Or do you look at it as, you know, Deshaun Watson is there, so I'm fine, and the fact that Bill O'Brien stripped the cupboard means that I'm, I'm going to have an even longer shelf life as head coach because I'll have that built-in excuse. You have to weigh those two things against each other for sure. Is Watson enough of a selling point to get past the fact that the draft capital is depleted and will make it harder for you to rebuild your team when for new head coaches, your draft capital is the most important resource you have to rebuilding your team? 
And you also have to consider the influence of Jack Easterby, given that he was once close with O'Brien and is now overseeing the search for his replacement. Can I just give some free advice to every owner out there? Um, and I'm also available. Like I am, I'm I'm available to be head coach of the Texans. I will I will put my name out there um, if you would, if you'd like to hire me. Um, but um, I will also be your team's character coach too, if if you would like. But nobody can replicate what's happening in New England. Let me say that ten times. You should record that on a small little MP3 and play it every morning when you wake up on your phone. Nobody can replicate the Patriots. Hiring ten more Patriots coaches isn't going to help. Hiring their character coach and their offensive coordinator. And their GM is not going to help. You're not going to be able to replicate the success of that program. That's a once in a generation occurrence where everything lined up the right way, all the right personalities and all the right people, places and things. I, it's not going to happen. And so I'm, I'm shocked that the, everybody is continuing to try with basically the same <laughs> tired, unsuccessful battle plan. Yeah. And speaking of coaches on the hot seat, that leads us nicely into topic number two. After the Lions dropped to one and three this season with a loss to the New Orleans Saints, Lions head coach and ineffective assistant regional manager cosplayer Matt Patricia said, God, I love the, this is why people, I hope, resubscribe to this feed is to keep up with Connor's spicy topics. Anyways, Patricia said, I think when I came to Detroit, there was a lot of work to do, and that's what we're trying to do. But talking about this year, we're talking about right now, these first four games, and obviously today wasn't good enough. His comments have been roundly lambasted given that he took over for Jim Caldwell, who went 9-7 and in each of his last two seasons with the Lions and 11-5 and in his first season. Patricia is now 10-25-1 at the helm for Detroit. Ooh, Connor, there is a lot to break down here. <laughs> yeah, so Matt Patricia has yet to win as many games in a season as Jim Caldwell won in his worst season with the Lions. And, you know, I he's just such a... I mean, I put assistant regional manager cosplayer there, but everyone has worked with just like this ineffective hanger-on that somehow... W- stumbles into a leadership position and comes out and says things on a daily basis that just make your mind spin over and over. And the idea that the Lions were irreparably broken somehow after winning 18 games in two years and 11 games in a playoff appearance in another year, the best that Matt Stafford had looked um, probably in his career uh, in playing with Jim Caldwell is just ludicrous. And to say that, oh, we're, we're on our way to fixing it when all you've done is sign defective Patriot castaways and think that you can replicate the defense that you ran in New England is it's just, it's stupid. It's stupidity. Like, you know, you're drafting all these running backs, but your lead back is Adrian Peterson that you signed a week before the season. So none of these guys are ready. Like there's just so many holes in his logic there. And I hope that ownership is looking at this and saying, okay, I think we made a mistake. Yeah. And I thought former Lions backup quarterback, Dan Orlowski, who works for ESPN now, he had some comments on Twitter about this. And I thought he raised some good points. One, that Caldwell wouldn't have done the cutting down of another coach, which was clearly what Patricia's comments did. And two, things were good under Caldwell. They had some success. The Matt Stafford was playing well. Uh, the team was in the playoff conversation every year. And that has not been true in the Patricia era. I just wonder what Patricia has done to 
continue to earn the benefit of the doubt. I mean, there's been messy divorces with players. Darius Slay is one example. Um, He's been contentious with the media, uh, critical of people who are just trying to do their jobs. Uh, And there was early on, soon after he was hired, the report came out that he was uh, indicted but not tried in a sexual, sexual assault in the 1990s, right? So We've seen a lot of troubling examples here. And really what this boiled down to was Bob Quinn wanted to hire his friend from New England. And I think this is where we're trying to see hopefully an overhauling of the hiring process because we see too much of this, that someone gets a job and they telegraph in the GM or the head coach position opposite them, their buddy, someone they've worked with, someone they've comfortable with. And that was clearly the plan. Bob Quinn was not going to hang on to Caldwell. He wanted to bring Patricia in, whether or not Patricia was better suited for the job. And based on the evidence, he has not been. It's insane to me that people don't listen to, you know, every single sound argument out there for coach hiring is against what you had just said, right? Is closing your eyes to the process and hiring your best friend and then slamming the hire through and assuming that, you know, it's everything is going to work out fine. When like, if you, you know, who are the biggest and loudest proponents of the Rooney rule? Tony Dungy, who won a Super Bowl and who uh, I think is in the, the Hall of Fame, yeah, he's in the Hall of Fame. Um, uh, the Rooney family, who arguably run the most successful organization um, in the NFL over a sustained period of time. Like all these people, you know, Bruce Arians down in Tampa Bay um, uh, talking about the process and the lapses in logic and a lot of these things. Um, you know, it's unbelievable that all these successful people are saying, hey, here's how you do it here's the game plan and yet people are just like no we're <laughs> we're yeah. we're gonna run this thing like a fraternity because that's the way we want to do it and we want crappy teams and uninteresting people and you know it's just a joke and i think that this is the worst that detroit has looked in a long time and now i think it's getting to the point where it's almost a little toxic or embarrassing you know he can't uh, patricia has proven time and time again whether it's insulting the way that a, a reporter sits or dressed i think you know mm-hmm. and you know this yep. is a guy who comes to work dressed like a pirate every day and uh you know so he's insulting the way that somebody sits or is dressed and he he's not handling the criticism well you know it reflects poorly on the organization i think and so here we are you know one in three and uh you know in last place in the division and in a lot of ways it's like you know the lions deserve that for not recognizing this a little bit sooner and and trying to build something uh that i don't know uh, had a little bit more thought and consideration behind it Yeah, and they obviously have had a controlling ownership change, or rather Martha Firestone Ford stepped away uh, as leading in charge of the team, and her daughter, Sheila Ford Hample, is making the decisions, so there will be a new kind of uh, person at the helm, if you will. Whether or not that affects the decision-making process, I don't know, But because ownership made pretty clear last year that if there wasn't towards progress, Uh, wasn't progress towards being a team that could contend every year. Changes would be necessary. And at this point, both Patricia and Quinn should be held responsible uh, for the state that the team is in right now. If you're Matt Stafford, how frustrating is this? Yeah, You know, I mean, you had an upward trajectory. I don't know his personal feelings on Jim Caldwell. I don't know. um, I'm sure 
he had said some things in the wake of it, or he was asked about it a couple times, but he'd been playing the better, best that he had ever been playing. Um, that was when they were, uh, you know, working with Jim Bob Cooter too, who seemed to uh, be a good offensive voice for him. And the system seemed to be producing a lot of yards. I mean, that was at a time where they were really, um, you know, uh, really kind of beating teams and outscoring teams playing well. So you wonder like, you know, quarterbacks primes are finite, right? I mean, they don't last forever. And so this whole thing had to be um, undoubtedly frustrating for him. And you wonder what's really going on, you know, in his head right now. Yeah. Yesterday, Jenny, the Browns scored more than 28 points in the first half of a game for the first time since the year the Cold War ended. So that's 1991. Uh, They are very much in the thick of a good AFC North race, and things seem to be going well, but they are the Browns, and somewhere in their sordid history, managed to conjure an endless curse of dark magic that forever hangs over the franchise. Uh, Did the curse get cured, or uh, is it still just looming somewhere, and we're waiting uh, for the Browns to falter? I mean, I feel like as far as curses go, the Browns have just been bad. I feel like the Chargers, for instance, haven't cursed. Mm, with like fair. fluky late game ends to games that always go the wrong way, um, which we continue to see this season, although they mm-hmm. did get a, a break week one. Um, I am beginning to believe a little bit. Uh, this performance changed my mind a little wow. bit. Um I know I've been skeptical if the Browns were really turning the corner and as usual or was ahead of things. You predicted the Browns to be good this year. You liked the Stefanski hire. Uh, we are seeing the results of that uh, in how he's built the offense around the strengths. Obviously, the Chubb injury is a blow, but one aspect of the Browns offensive identity also traces to Bill Callahan, the offensive line coach. And mm-hmm. he was the offensive line coach when we covered the jets. So we saw firsthand the impact that he makes on players. And we've seen it at every stop where he's been, you know, Dallas, Washington, he made those units better and stronger and was a real force in the offensive identity of a team. And now we are seeing it in Cleveland, which is exactly what they need. And then miles Garrett. I mean, I think I picked him to be defensive player of the year last year. And obviously his season got derailed um, based off of his actions against the Steelers. Um, But this is the disruptive playmaking force that was the first overall pick. Like this is what we were expecting from Miles Garrett when the team drafted him. Yeah. It's a great point on, on um, Bill Callahan and it's crazy because you just follow him throughout the league and you look at the performances of those teams and everyone's like, oh, well, how great is the Cowboys offense? Well, and Ezekiel, well, Bill Callahan was there. And mm-hmm. wow, the Washington is running the ball a little bit better. You know, they're not as bad as we thought. Well, Bill Callahan was there. And, mm-hmm. you know, everywhere that he goes and, um, you know, I was talking about this with um, Gary Gramling, who hosts the the, the Monday morning uh, wrap-up show. And it, it's it's one of those things where, 
there are so few good offensive line coaches out there and you wonder why he's always just avail like somewhat available. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And uh, I made the point that if I was Callahan, I would start becoming the Darrell Revis of offensive line coaches, just like the, the mercenary, like pay me more than the head coach. Cause I'm worth it and I'll go wherever. And I will, I will create this magical running game. But yeah, I, I think the Browns are just for the first time doing everything that good teams do, right? They're winning a turnover margin. Um, they're playing sensibly late in games. Although I will admit that I had that like familiar sense of Ajita going into that final, you know, I grew up as a Browns fan, full disclosure. And with six minutes left, it's an 11 point lead. And then Baker Mayfield Mm -hmm. overthrows Odell Beckham. And then the punter shanks the kick. And then the Cowboys come back and score and they get the two point conversion. I'm like, okay, here it goes. Like, this is it. This has been, yep. This has been every single time for forever. And then even the start of the Odell Beckham touchdown on the reverse, like he's dead to rights in the backfield it was a busted call and somehow he scores on that play and I I don't know like for the first time ever I was like oh my gosh this team might not be like irreparably cursed I I don't know what's going on here yeah it actually worked out that play was a great example where it just looked like it was gonna fail spectacularly and then it ended up being this just dazzling improbable result (laughs) I compared previous Brown successes to like a sugar high because that's what it was, right? It was this ultimately unhealthy short-term spike in enjoyment that you have to pay for later because the root cause of it is, you know, uh, chemically produced sugar or whatever it is, you know, in the Brown's case, a bad, bad ownership or, you know, bad, uh, personnel whatever it is but this team is good and they're functional and I can't wait to see them I I can't believe I'm saying this but I can't wait to see them play Um, you know they obviously didn't perform well against the Ravens uh, that first game at the beginning of the season but you can maybe forgive that a little bit but some of the other really good teams on their schedule and see how they're matching up because I don't I'm curious if you agree with me I don't think Dallas is a bad team I think they're playing poorly but Mm -hmm. I, I think they're a good team and I think the Browns can count that as a quality victory Absolutely, Connor. I agree. I mean, Dallas hung with Seattle, so they haven't been winning, but they have shown good things, and they're not an easy opponent. So, all right, what do we uh, for news topic number four? Uh, if the season ended right now, which Jenny, it's twenty twenty. Lord knows what could happen here. Uh, the Philadelphia Eagles' lone win over the 49ers on Sunday Night Football would clinch them the NFC East at one, two, and one. This division is normally bad, but seems extra bad in twenty twenty. What gives? Cite exp- specific examples. <laughs> I, I don't know why spent, I put that. I just like that. No, I liked test. it. It was funny. <laughs> I actually spent this morning looking back at the last decade of division records and how divisions played out Connor to see how the NFC East fits in I'll probably write something up for the MMQB but essentially it's the NFC East and the AFC South that over the last decade really rank at the bottom which is not a huge surprise but um, basically the the teams that have won the division um, have the worst records by far in the worst composite records in the NFC East and the AFC South. The NFC East also has the fewest number of wild card teams um, that have joined that have made the playoffs uh, with two over the last decade. Uh, the next closest is four, which was the AFC South and the AFC East. Sorry for all the background noise. We're just doing our best <laughs> recording at home <laughs> these days. So 
Um, so yes, and overall, the AFC South has had the worst record, like composite records across the division over the last decade. Uh, the NFC East is a in second place. A somewhat close second. So essentially, these two are at the bottom of the barrel. But yes, this has been a historically bad start for the NFC East. And they were also really bad last year. They were a composite 24 and 40. And the worst we've seen over the last decade was the 2014 NFC South, which we all remember. 22, Oof. 41, and 1. Yikes. Um, yeah, I just... It, in Philadelphia, it seems like they're stuck between who they want to be and who they are now. And either they didn't have enough time to get there or um, I'm not sure, but you know, I think where there's a little bit of smoke or simmering, there's fire. I think Jeff McLean, who does a really good job covering the team for the Enquirer, wrote a big thing about the uh, member in the off season when Doug Peterson said he wasn't firing his offensive coordinator. And then he ended up firing his offensive coordinator a day later and, you know, why that happened and, you know, who was coming and going and the reasons for all the changes that they made. And so I think there's some interesting stuff going on there. Philly just trying to figure that out. We knew that Washington was going to be bad, we had a feeling that the Giants were not going to be great, but Dallas, I mean, this was a chance for them to run away with the division. Mm -hmm. They're just loaded with star power. Um, you know, obviously have some work to be uh, to be done on the defensive side of the ball, but it's really weird how every year this team, it, it's, you know what it's like? It, it's like a, um, it's like a bad high school cross country race where, you know, the fastest person sets out and, you know, can can just jog at a slow pace because nobody else is catching up to them and everybody's just looking around wondering when who's going to make a move, who's going to make a move, and nobody does. And this is the NFC East every year where it's just like, well, let's all just stumble out of the gate and somebody will figure this out by December. Yeah, I mean, a 9-7 and seven record over the last decade has won three times. 10-6 and six has won the division four times. And then there were a handful of good years. You know, the Eagles were 13 and 3 in 2017, Cowboys were 13 and 3 in 2016. But by and large, yeah, it's been a 9 and 7, 10 and 6 kind of situation. And I agree with you, Connor. You know, expectations were not high for the Giants or Washington this year, but expectations were pretty high for both the Eagles and the Cowboys. And watching that game, a lot of discussion about how Wentz is off, but I also think. It was just so apparent in the game against the 49ers that he's constantly on the move because he has to be. Protection is not good. And then he doesn't have the kind of speedy targets. You know, look at who he's throwing to. Um, it's just not working the way it should. So I don't think it's all on Wentz. Um, but of course, I think when those things around you start to break down, then you also play worse and you get into the skittish, situ skittish situation. And that's certainly what we're seeing now. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's just not fun, you know, and it's weird that if the Giants had actually pulled that out yesterday, uh, we would have been talking about like them being very much in the thick of things, <laughs> which true. Uh, speaking of which dovetails very nicely into a maybe uh, a recurring segment here on the new and improved, beautifully produced Weekside podcast. We'd like to introduce a new segment called New York Football Autumn of Despair. <laughs> that's so ominous. I love it. That's Thank perfect. you, Shelby. Very, well very ominous. Great. Very ominous. Perfect. 
and will probably have cause to invoke this music many weeks <laughs> in the future uh, season to come. Uh, the rest of the season, rather. Because the Giants and the Jets are in a race for the number one pick after both dropping to 0-4 this weekend. Is there any brightness here on the horizon, or will our local football continue to mirror our own slow, slow march to a sloppy and cold winter? I'm thinking it's the latter, Jenny. Yeah, I am too. And, I, th- you know, yesterday, again, in the Rams game, it was one of those quick moments where... You know, I think if you were a Giants fan, you could have come away somewhat encouraged, right? You you slowed down that really powerful offense. I think that for all the things that you could bang Dave Gettleman for, the defensive linemen that he's drafted are playing well. I, Leonard Williams is not a franchise tag caliber player, but um, your drafted players are good. James Bradbury is one of the better cornerbacks in the league right now. All that is good, and it's working for you, but... Um, you know, the offensive line still isn't playing well. You're not running the football. Your quarterback continues to turn the football over. And then after the game, the guy that you bring in, uh, after you get rid of Odell Beckham because he's bad for the culture, the guy that you bring in to replace him, you know, punches a cornerback in the face on the other team in the, in the middle of the field, which, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I think that's just let, probably left a bad taste in their mouths a little bit. Yeah, it's just hard to see how either of these teams will get much better. And they're, of course, in different situations. Joe Judge is in his first season. Adam Gase is in season two. And there's a lot more going on, it seems, over there than in Giants land, right? In Giants land, it's sort of still the the new coach trying to chart a new path for the organization. And so there's a little bit more forgiveness, whereas Gase we haven't seen any progress since he's taken over and there's been some questionable decisions in terms of management of the roster for instance Becton play uh, being you know available to play when he clearly wasn't in any physical condition to play and I think a lot of that falls on the head coach and general manager for this is a rookie and you have to make decisions that are in the long-term best interest of the player because that's also in the long-term best interest of the organization and so I think there have been a lot of questions about leadership whereas with the Giants it's just another disappointing season but um, you know Judge is not answering for that at this point in time. So I'm looking at the jet schedule coming up here and uh, I'm trying to be nice um, but they have the Cardinals uh, they host the Cardinals, which, you know, cross-country game. Arizona's not infallible at this point. They've played some bad football. Um, but then they go to uh, Los Angeles to play the Chargers, to Buffalo, to Kansas City, uh, or uh, host Buffalo, to Kansas City, host New England, to Miami, then the bye week, then Miami again, then the Raiders, the Seahawks, the Rams, the Browns, the Patriots. I don't see a win on this schedule. Like, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to be nice. I don't see a win on the schedule. Maybe one of the two Dolphins games you eke out um, because of his familiarity with the roster. You can create some mismatch problems there. I don't know. Maybe the Browns aren't playing as well at the end of the season. You know, maybe the Raiders, but at most three, right? I mean, I'm not seeing a real, um, a real chance to turn this thing around. I mean... It, at first, I, you know, a couple weeks ago when everyone was 0-2, I was just kind of saying, oh, wouldn't it be crazy if the Jets ended up in line for the number one pick? But I, I think it's a legitimate chance that the Jets might get the number one pick. Yeah. Now they would be your first pick to get the number one pick at this mm-hmm. point in time. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No doubt. Yeah. 
because look at the Giants. The Giants have the Cowboys, which I, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm le- I'm more confident in saying that the Giants could beat the Cowboys than I am in saying the Jets could beat the Dolphins, which is saying something. And then they still have two games against Washington, which are very winnable. That the one of those Eagles games is winnable too, you know. And uh, and they have a, a road game against the Bengals, all of which I think that they could probably play pretty well in. But uh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and it opens up. You know, we had talked about this on the Jaguars pod a few weeks ago. Like, if you're Trevor Lawrence and you're looking at this now, does that freak you out at all? I mean, Peyton Manning, uh, you know, famously decided not to come out when he knew that the Jets were sitting there. I don't think that they've improved their status as an organization very much since then. And it's been, what, 23 years since that happened, 24 years. But um, it's it's kind of scary to think about what might actually go down here, you know? Yeah, and if you go back to to what the pre-draft evaluations were on Sam Darnold, he was thought to be the safest pick in that class, the one that there was the least chance of messing up. Maybe he didn't have the highest ceiling, but he had the highest floor. Um, And so the fact that things have not been going well in terms of his development, and obviously there have been hiccups, injuries, and illnesses um, that have disrupted that progress, but that was the main reason they brought in Gase and thus the main thing by which he will be evaluated. What would you do if you're if you were the Jets? Like what direction would you go in knowing kind of let's say the year ends at I don't know 2 and uh, 2 and 14, 3 and 13 and you have your choice of retention, hiring a head coach, I don't know what what would you do? I think what Christopher Johnson needs to do is get a sense from the locker room if Gase is a guy that they can play for. And I don't know that answer definitively. Locker rooms are not open this year. All the player comments are via Zoom calls. But there have been troubling indications, um, some tension with Bell uh, in terms of his handling and practice, some you know some tweets that they've had to address publicly, um, this Becton situation. So is he a coach that players in your locker room will play for and that you'll be able to get free agents to come to your team to play for? Is he somebody that people believes in? People believe in. Does Sam Darnold believe in gay? So I think Christopher Johnson, his priority needs to be having those kinds of conversations and then making an evaluation based on that because the roster is still not in good shape and needs more work to get in good shape but for a head coach to continue to be the person that you ride with regardless of roster he needs to be somebody that players will fight for someone that they trust someone that they can see his vision moving forward and they want to be a part of it so if that is not the case then it's time for a change yeah I wonder what Trevor Lawrence is thinking right now because you know it has to be in the back of his mind Um, You know, he's certainly the number one pick. You wait to see how the dominoes are falling. And he looks phenomenal this year. I mean, he just, he's so far and away the best prospect that we've seen since Andrew Luck. And it's, it's almost not even close. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're him and you're like looking around, you're saying, geez, I mean, I I don't know what to do. I mean, maybe you get on the phone with the Mannings, you know, and you learn how to operate this thing a little bit, you know, and, uh, and find yourself in New England somehow replacing Tom Brady, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was a discussion last year with Joe Burrow, and it will definitely be the discussion with Lawrence, as you said. Talents like him don't come across very often, and so teams, uh, yeah, he can use that influence and power if he chooses in different ways. And this has been 
your latest installment of the autumn of despair in new york football <laughs> love it very cool all right connor shall we move on to everyone's favorite segment the oracle <laughs> makes me feel like um like i'm at the top of a mountain with like a tablet you know and like perfect yeah know, i've come to seek your advice <laughs> i want to hear from the oracle what will be happening in the nfl this week or this coming year by the way or by the way, I'm, I'm just going to toot my own horn just a little bit here. Um, and I, you know, I was out walking the dog a few weeks ago and ran into a neighbor who was like, hey, you know, uh, whatever. I enjoyed, enjoyed their fan duel, you know, like to have a good time on there. And they said, any interesting sort of things that you think about the season coming up here? And I was like, well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I'd just gotten an email that the Broncos were the most bet-on team to go over their win total in all of uh, the offseason for the sportsbook William Hill. And I think they were eight and a half or an eight, yeah, like an eight and a half wins. Uh, People were betting them to go over that, to win nine games. And I was saying, you know, I think the under might be a pretty safe bet there. So I'm actually, you know, I'm winning my neighbors some money here too. You know, this is not just, there's consequences to following the Oracle. All right. All right. So I feel, I I felt pretty good about that. You know, maybe they'll, I don't know. I don't know how much money they bet on it, but maybe, maybe they'll build a, I don't know. They'll do something nice for their yard or something like that. I don't know. Um, Yeah. All right. So enlighten us this week. (laughs) Um, I think that there's going to be a little bit of a shakeup here coming up in the rookie of the year race. Uh, I thought this was a one horse race for a little bit here, but I think Justin Herbert's going to come and take this thing. And here's why. Not only did he play f- phenomenally against Tampa Bay, but I think that the Chargers are going to adjust and they're going to let him rip because he's ready to. Um, I saw a great mm-hmm. stat and forgive me on uh, whoever tweeted this that I, I'm not giving you proper credit, but you deserve it is that, uh, 50% of his throws so far have been on second and seven plus or third and seven plus. So majority of his passes are coming in obvious passing situations where the team is backed up um, and has already unsuccessfully tried to run the ball. If you're a coach, you get those numbers and you get those reports and then you do your best to seem less predictable. And I think that they will mix that up. And once they do, I mean, this guy's pretty fearless. And I think Keenan Allen is playing super well. He had a great game on Sunday. Like, I think that I don't know where the Chargers are going, but I think that he could come up from behind and catch Burrow. I love this Oracle, Connor. I agree with you. I think Herbert has been a revelation. And the word you used, fearless, is how I would describe his play. Some of those throws where he was dropping back, buying time, and then launching these deep passes. There was the one that went about 60 yards in the air. He's just throwing without any reservation. Obviously, there have been mistakes from time to time, but he's continuing to learn. And I think that confidence that you see in him has really been impressive. And from the beginning where he was thrown in with almost zero notice, Tyrod Taylor's injury came right before kickoff. He's just seemed prepared and cool and like nothing has phased him. And I think I was curious to see, well, what happens when you have a week building up and pressure on top of you? And since that surprise start, he's had two other games and he's performed well in both. And so I could 
I could see it ending up this way, which is a surprise because we all expected Taylor to, to start for several games. Obviously, circumstances changed quickly and were not what the Chargers had planned for. But at this point, it's hard to see them being able to go back from Herbert with as well as he's playing. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, you obviously feel so bad for Tyrod Taylor, who this is the second time now this has happened to him um, in as many teams. But uh, at this point, yeah, Herbert has really kind of made that decision super difficult for you. And, uh, you know, if you're Anthony Lynn, do you ever want that to happen to one of your players? Absolutely not. But do you want this to happen from one of your rookies? You know, yeah, I think so. All right, Jenny, what do we have for our first Francis consensus of the new era consensus <laughs> love that thanks Shelby it really sets it up nicely so good this week I believe the league and the players association should begin preparing for an NFL playoffs bubble the idea of a regular season bubble did not get off the ground, but that is for a longer length of time. At the very least, they should prepare for teams to bubble in their home cities during the playoffs to prevent surprise tests, the complication of false positives, uh, starting players having to miss time in a game. It's in everyone's best interest, and it's more importantly in the best interest of community safety to bubble. And I think it would be a mistake to not make plans. As far as I know, as recently as last week, there were no plans for a playoff bubble. That was something that had been floated in the summer by some head coaches and had been quickly moved away from. But I think to see a conclusion of this season that is safe and fair, a bubble is the only way to do that. Yeah. And consensus. (laughs) What's it like, uh, Jenny, like the, I mean, people don't realize our new cover art, that's how we dress typically. Um, so that was just, they were drawing us live. Uh, just a photo do. of us yeah. uh, in our daily it, lives. How does it feel to be the sort of the picture of um, stateliness, uh, of, of like this firm uh, sports opinion that is infallible, like you are the, you know... Uh, well, I don't know, like the, the, the chief justice of the sports world. What is that like, I wonder? I have to say that the fact that we have a Brentus consensus segment is antithetical to the name and ethos of the pod, being the weak side <laughs> podcast, being very self-deprecating. Really, am not always that sure of anything. So coming up with a consensus this week has been an interesting exercise, but I do feel strongly about this one, so that's something. I feel like when uh, Shelby pulls all of your consens- consensi, multiple consensuses, what is the uh, plural of consensus? It might be consensuses, similar to how the plural of octopus is octopuses. Really? Which we know from talking to our coworker, Mitch Goldich. Mm-hmm. Why did he do something with that? No, just kidding. Love you, Mitch. Um, but yeah, I think that if Shelby had pulled out uh, all of your consensuses and like preserved them in a time capsule, and then we we listened to them twenty years later, it, there it would be there wouldn't be a bad take, you know? It Ooh, would, Connor, it, I it, think that's a bad take. I think it would be like um, what was it? Uh, 
I think Rolling Stone just redid their top 500 albums of all time, and uh, Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, they they re-listened to it and said, holy God, this guy was right about almost everything, you know, 40 years ago. He was, uh, you know, I think that you'll be that. Like, in w- once we dig out the time capsule, I think the Ventus consensus will be a, like, I would like the aliens to find that when they come <laughs> and decide, uh, you know, what kind of people we are, so... Well, I'm just grateful we have a small number of loyal listeners that join us every week. And I'm glad that hopefully many of them have joined us on our new feed, Connor. Mm -hmm. And they can be the judge. They can give a consensus on whether or not they think they're worthwhile. But uh, I'm glad we have sound effects. I feel like it makes it a little bit more, uh, it sounds more official this way. Consensus. It feels good. It's like it's like you know we moved into a new house. You know everything is new, yeah. and you can still smell the paint on the walls. And you're afraid to you're afraid to scuff up the floor. It's a good feeling. You know, I like yeah, it. Yeah, it is. And just a reminder, everyone, you can still reach us at weeksidepod at gmail dot com, or you can try our brand new voicemail line at nine two nine four four five seven three four nine. Thank you for joining us on this new feed of the Weekside Podcast. This show is me, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed for free on Apple Podcasts. It's the one with the great cover art of Connor as a wizard and Jenny as a judge. (laughs) And while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. In separate beds meant for two And in this wireless world See, distance is a rusty excuse When I still have nights Then I hear whispers that threaten our flame Will I be glued to my phone Just wishing it would show me your name Talk is cheap, the talk is probably the same Cause we got this thing that they can't see And I've got you and you've got me So go on and do whatever you've gotta do You left in a rush for L.A. But I wasn't gonna strangle your dreams or stand in your way, no. And my friends all think it's time that I start growing a brain. But we got this thing that they can't see. And I've got you and you've got me. So go on and do whatever. 
Time to do what we've got to 